We've been journeying around the lake, the lake of Gennesaret, you saw in that song, the Sea of Galilee. In fact, here's a map of it. Uh, We've been all over the place. We've spent the last three weeks up in the north part in Capernaum, and it's hard to see it on the small screen, but the very top, it says Bethsaida, and that's where we're heading today. So I ask that you just bow your heads and we'll pray as we dive in. This morning, God, we've been worshiping you. May your presence continue to be here, and as we worship you through uh, our message and our thoughts, may it be received to you as worship. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our tour bus stopped at Bethsaida. It's just a couple of miles around the the top of the lake there and kind of up the the river. Uh, Bethsaida is a fishing town. Archaeologists know it's a fishing town because they they found hooks and and fishing paraphernalia all over the place. In fact, Bethsaida was the home of Peter and Andrew growing up. And when we got there, I, I got out of the bus and I thought, there's nothing here. Why are we stopping here? In fact, this is a picture of, of what it looks like today. Uh, a little blurry, but it's, they got a modern day path and all you can see are kind of some, some old remains of houses. Here, here's another picture a little closer up. Uh, you can kind of see the, the, the house foundations, just, just rocks piled together. And it's kind of a boring sight. It's, it's dusty and rocky and dirty. And it used to be right next to the Sea of Galilee. But over time, and as more and more water is pulled out of the, the Jordan River as it heads on down to the Dead Sea, um, the, the Sea of Galilee is shrinking. It's getting smaller and smaller. And so Bethsaida used to be on the lake, but it no longer is. And it's in this town, or very close to this town. It's not much of a town. It's more like a, a homestead. It's near this place that our story happens today. And I think that this story is the exclamation point on Jesus' ministry in Galilee as he impacts such a large group. The story today starts in Matthew chapter 14, and if you brought your Bible with you, you can open it to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's the blue Bible, the blue book in front of you, and you can follow along on page 692. It'll be the same translation that I'm reading today. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you this little fact. This story is in all four Gospels which tells me that this story is an impactful story that for generations to come, these Bible writers said, everybody has to hear this story because it's that important. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write this story. It's in Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start reading in verse 13. We're going to read the whole passage, the whole story, and then we'll go back through it. Matthew 14, verse 13. Here's what it says in my Bible. When Jesus heard what had happened, we'll come back to that, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks broke the loaves, then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples picked up 12 
basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides men uh, besides women and children. That's the story. You've heard it before. You heard a little bit of it here in our children's story this morning. John the Baptist has died. That's Jesus' friend. It's his relative. It's the the one that went before him to say, guys, the guy that's coming after me is the Messiah. It's Jesus. And he's now died. And Jesus, because he was human while being God here on earth, he has human emotions and human pain, and he feels just like we do. And he wants to go and mourn in a way that humans mourn. He wants to be by himself, and he wants to mourn. Uh, in Jewish tradition, says that when people would mourn, they'd put their shawl up over their head and they would bow down in the dirt and they would bang on the ground and the dust that would get kicked up, they'd, they'd throw it in their face and they would curse the day they were ever brought into this world. And Jesus may be wanting to do this. He wants to be by himself. It's, it's kind of a private thing as he mourns. And so he says, I, I want to go be by myself. And so he gets in a boat and he heads over towards Bethsaida. And as he gets to the shore, who should be there but a huge crowd of people? They want to be with him. And these people, they're not affluent. They're not super wealthy. They didn't drive their carts over there. They walked over there. In fact, it's poor people. Poor people for, for maybe a reason or a cause. There's people there that have broken limbs. They're limping. Maybe they didn't have enough money to afford good health care. Whatever it is, some are blind, some are handicapped, and they have worked their way just a few miles down the road and up to Bethsaida where they know Jesus is going. And they get there and they wait for him because they know and they pray, they hope that if they can just be around Jesus, that he will heal them too. And as Jesus, who is heartbroken, his boat comes to the shore and he sees the crowd of people, and I wonder if he just wanted to turn around and sail to the other side of the lake, but he doesn't because he's the God of the universe that cares about people. The Bible says that he had compassion on them. That's the God that I know, a God that puts others first before his own feelings. He has compassion on them. The the God that needed more compassion than anyone else at that moment has compassion on people. Uh, You don't see the disciples having compassion. It's Jesus himself that has the compassion. These people, they've, they've come from all over the place because they too are broken. They're hurting. In fact, Mark describes this people, this group of people, here's how Mark describes them. As a sheep without a shepherd. Now, I've heard this before, sheep without a shepherd. And we talk about sheep sometimes. Pastors preach about sheep. And almost always we talk about how sheep are kind of dumb animals. In fact, in first service, as I was talking about sheep, I was reminded of a a YouTube video, and I thought, oh man, I wish I'd plugged that in. Well, between first and second service, Josh Chobitar, who's running our AV, I don't even know how old Josh is. He's a young buck in our church. He's a great leader. He came to me and said, hey, Pastor Matt, is this the video you're talking about? He held up his phone, and there it was. I said, that's the one. He said, I can make it happen, man. I said, let's make it happen. Sheep are not the smartest creatures. I mean, they they do dumb stuff, kind of. You can try and guide them and, and, t- and help them, but they'll, they're not the smartest creatures. And this video that Josh found for me is an example of it. Go ahead, Josh. Let's see what you got. You got a sheep stuck. He's stuck in there. There's the shepherds trying to get him out. Yay! Hey, he's free, he's free, he's free, he's free. <laughs> oh. 
Oh my. And even though sheep might not, not be the smartest animal, I don't think Mark is describing them as dumb. I don't think Mark is saying, the big group of people that came down to the shore are a bunch of dummies. I think what he's saying is a bigger picture of what sheep need because the shepherd not only keeps sheep out of the ditch and not only the shepherd keeps them away from the poisonous grass, but the shepherd also has to care for them and their physical bodies too. In fact, sheep are known with their wool. They get these ticks and these mites and these little burrowing creatures that'll get deep into their wool. They'll go right into their scalp and it just itches them and itches them and itches them. In fact, that's why shepherds often would pour oil on them and and heal these these areas where these bugs are. In fact, it's known that sheep, as they're itching and they, they have this terrible sensation, they'll do whatever it takes. They'll scratch up against something, rub up against something, or if it's in their head, they'll, they'll bang against a rock over and over trying to get the bugs to fall out, and sometimes they die because they're banging on their heads. And I imagine that this group of people are the people that just need someone to care for them, to love on them, to heal them, and they've come to be with Jesus. Mark compares these helpless people to sheep because they need the compassion that Jesus has, and Jesus has compassion on them. And he begins to heal them. But I don't think he heals them in the way that you might see a televangelist uh, on, the, on the TV healing people, or he, he lines them up and then smacks them on the forehead and they fall backwards and they're healed, or he takes off his coat jacket and kind of snaps it at them and they're healed. I think Jesus did something different where he got down on their level and he said, hey, tell me your name. Tell me your story. What's going on in your life? And how can I heal you? And then he'd go to the next one. He'd say, hey, I want to know your name too. And tell me about your family. I want to know what's been going on in your family too. And he heals them. And because Jesus shows loving, tender compassion to each and every person that's there, it takes a long time. And the sun begins to go down. And people are starting to get hungry. The disciples mostly are starting to get hungry. And so they come to Jesus and they say, hey, we're hungry tell the people to go away and go buy some food and whatever. They don't have any money. They're poor. If they had gone to another city or another town, what are they going to do? They don't have money to buy food. But the disciples have something else. It's a secret. They have a secret that nobody else knows. At least they think so. It's a secret about their baskets. See, these disciples... They always would be with Jesus. They're following the rabbi around. They they don't know where he's going to go for the day, and so they need to be prepared, and so they would oftentimes pack a sack lunch and put it in their basket and carry it with them because who knows where they're going to be, and they would never want to be in a compromised situation where they they might need to buy food from a Gentile or a Jew that didn't take care as they prepared food, and so they'd carry these baskets around that had food except for today because they haven't brought their baskets. You've got 12, they haven't brought their full baskets, 12 disciples, 12 empty baskets. They have this secret that nobody knows, but John says that Jesus knew. Here's how John puts it. Here it is on the screen for you. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where should we buy food for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. He already knew what was happening, but he puts it out there for the disciples. Maybe he's trying to give them a chance to come clean, to tell their little secret. Jesus already knows what's going to happen. He says, well, hey, what are we going to do, guys? You brought this problem to me. Well, why would you send them away? You give them something to eat. 
Don't you have your basket full? Didn't you pack your sack lunch? That's what good apprentices do. That's what good disciples do. You give them something to eat. But instead of just admitting that they didn't have food, the disciples get defensive. And you can see their defensiveness and their snarky, judgmental reply. Here's how Mark writes their reply down. You can see it on the screen here. Here's what it says. They say, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Oh man, that's not the heart of Jesus. Are we supposed to give it to them? These poor people, the ones that are crippled? Why would we spend our money from our wallets and spend it on them? The disciples get defensive. Maybe they're embarrassed, but they just, they're defensive. And as I think about the disciples back then, it reminds me about disciples today. Have you ever noticed that when God gives us a command and we aren't doing what we should be doing, we get defensive? We've got this rebellion in our hearts that doesn't want to hear what he has to say to us. And when God gives us a command or he gives us instructions on how to live and we aren't living how he's told us to live, we get defensive. We don't want to hear it. And so we, we make excuses and we object to it. And as Jesus tells the disciples to feed the people, he says, you give them something to eat. The disciples gather around Jesus and they say, this is all we have, Jesus. We got five loaves and two fish. It's not enough. That's all we have, Jesus. It's not much. It's not even worth your time. How are we supposed to feed these people with this? And doesn't their attitude about, that's eh, all we have, doesn't it remind you of you? I mean, we, we find ourselves in a predicament, in a busted situation. It's a troublesome challenge. And we come to Jesus and we say, well, here's all I have, Jesus. It's not good enough. It's not going to fix the problem. It's not what we needed. And what I find is funny is that the disciples who have nothing, they have empty baskets, they come to Jesus and they tell him the problem, but they don't realize that the solution is standing right in front of them. Their baskets are empty, but the one that can make them full is right there. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the Prince of the universe that can do whatever he wants. He's the creator of everything. And their lack of faith amazes me and it reminds me of me too. How often do we go to Jesus and say, all I have is only this much. How will this ever work? What are we going to do? One of my favorite authors, Ellen White, she writes in the book Life Sketches, she writes a phrase, a, a, a little sentence that you guys have memorized. It's buried in my heart too. Here's what she writes, Life Sketches. She says, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us in the past. <laughs> She says, you don't have to worry about the future. Just remember what he did in the past. You know what he can do here because you've seen it back there. Or here's another way. I'll put it like this. You can put it on the screen, Josh. Knowing what he has done helps us know what he will do. And Jesus says, disciples, if that's all you have, give it to me. Let's see what happens. And we get to this part of the story where there's not one, there's not two, there's not three, but there's four miracles that happen. Here's the first one. Miracle number one. Jesus directs the people to sit down on the grass. Did y'all see those pictures a minute ago? Grass? You realize it's the desert, right? There's, it's just rocks and dust and dirt and that's it. 
There's nothing else. It's just gross out there. It's hot. Jesus commands them to sit down on the grass. Mark describes it as green grass. Like, oh, like Bermuda grass that, that grows on a golf course. Or like that St. Augustine, the thick bladed hardy grass that grows here in Florida, kind of pokes at your feet when you walk across it. In Georgia, we have something called Dallas grass. It's really just a weed and it grows in your yard and it, it, the Bermuda can't kill it. And the only way to get rid of the Dallas grass is by killing all the other grass and starting over. That's not the grass he's talking about. He's talking about a yard, a park, a perfectly, it's like astroturf out there. It's just beautiful, lush, and green. John says that it was plenty of grass. It's beautiful. And these Bible writers, these gospel writers, they're describing something as all four of them write it. All four of them want you to know something special about this passage. They're talking about the Messiah. It reminds me of the passage in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down on green grass. They're saying, this guy's the shepherd that puts grass under your feet. It reminds me of Isaiah where it says, the Messiah will come and the desert will bloom. They're saying, this, this man here, he's not just an ordinary man, he's Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's the God of the universe, and he can do miracles in your life too. And the same Jesus that's able to make grass appear in a desert, he's the same God that can take crusty, deserted, dry, old, painful memories and ugly parts of your life and he can make them bloom with beauty that only can come from God. Miracle number two, here's what it is. Jesus turns barley into great bread. Matthew 14, verse 19, here's what it says. He directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Now, there's an interesting word study that we have to pay attention to here as Jesus uh, gives thanks or he has a blessing over this bread. The word in Greek is this word eulageo. It's where we get our word eulogy. Uh, and uh, we have it at funerals. There's always a eulogy. There was a funeral in here yesterday, and there, I'm sure there was a eulogy. It's when someone speaks well of someone else. You speak well of something or someone. It's sad that we wait till people are dead before we speak well of them. And Jesus eulogizes this bread. And we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus need to speak well of bread? That's awkward. Nobody does that. Good little bread. We don't do this. Here's why. Here's why I think. John makes it very clear that this bread was made from barley. Barley is the lowest of the low grain. In fact, barley was never made or harvested back in the day. Barley was a weed. In fact, it would grow in the gutter. You're driving, or you're, you're walking along the road, you're riding a horse along the path, and dust goes over into the gutter, manure gets flung into the gutter, and the barley, this weed that's growing in the gutter, is, is the, junk, um, the junk grain of the universe. Barley. It's gross. Nobody wants it. In fact, uh, you weren't really supposed to eat it, humans. It wasn't even fit for animals. The Hebrew philosopher uh, or, or uh, historian Philo, he says, barley wasn't even made for the lowest of low animals. It's junk, which tells you how poor this little boy was and the family that he came from, his mama, his good mama that wants to make sure that her boy has some food. 
She makes him what she can. She goes out to the road, out into the street. She goes into the gutter and she picks barley and she goes and she makes bread for her boy, makes him a little loaf, a couple of loaves, a few loaves, just so he can have something to eat. And when he gives it to Jesus, Jesus can't just begin multiplying this because if he did that, then the poor people would say, that's not good food. I can't eat this. So Jesus, he takes barley bread and he lifts it up in front of the people and he begins to speak well of it. He says, this bread right here, this barley bread is good bread. It's a, it's a French baguette bread. It's crusty on the outside and, and good on the inside. This bread right here, it's a marble rye bread. Mmm, makes good toast. This bread right here is cinnamon crunch bagels from Panera. Have you had that before? Oh, it's good. It's like a dessert. And Jesus lifts the bread and he speaks well of the bread. And then he gives it to the people. He turns barley into good bread. And when the people get the bread, it's no longer a weed bread. It's great bread. And the miracle that Jesus performs to transform barley bread into good, yummy, delicious bread is the same miracle he can do in my life and your life too. I mean, how often have you felt unworthy and unholy and not good enough and not perfect enough to even come to Jesus? And yet when Jesus comes, when you go to Jesus, he says, I'll take your good-for-nothing life and I'll make it more valuable than you could ever imagine. The same Jesus that does miracles and transforms bread can and has done and will perform miracles in your life, taking barley and making it good bread. Miracle number three, it's the one you all know. It's Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. Jesus gives the, the bread to the disciples and they begin to pass it out. People sit down in groups of 50 and the disciples give it to them and, and as the bread comes... The first guy looks at it, kind of looks to see if anyone else is looking. He breaks a piece off, puts it in his jacket pocket, breaks a piece off, puts it in his pocket, grabs another piece, puts it under his arm. One more piece for the road. Goes to the next lady. She's a mom. She takes a piece, puts it in the diaper bag, <laughs> takes another piece, puts it in her pocket. One more piece. Oh, somebody caught her. It's for the kids. It's for the kids. It's okay. These guys are hungry, and they're not just rationing the food. The Bible says there was 5,000 people plus women and children. Scholars say there was about 20,000 people that were there, and they're famished. They're so hungry. They're not just taking a little bite to share with the rest. They're eating as much as they can, and they want to. In fact, as they eat, the Bible says that they were satisfied. And the Greek idea, the Greek word there, is this idea of a cow, a cow that's in a big field, and there's grass everywhere, good grass, thick grass, green grass, and he eats, oh, he eats so much. He eats until he is fat and happy, and he sits down in the grass, and he begins to enjoy his meal again as he chews the cud, which is really gross. <laughs> but you can imagine these people as they're, they're full. They feel good. They're fat and happy, and so they sit down on the grass together, and I think that there's chatter happening back and forth. Hey, did you see what Jesus just did? Hey, have you ever had bread that good? I, I wonder because we have all experienced God's miracles in our lives. Whether it's 
miracles that happen in your life or your family's life or your kids' lives or, or, or something that you've seen God do in friends' lives. We've all experienced his miracles. But I wonder, do we chat about it? Do we share the miracle that we've seen and experienced? Do we share it with others? Miracle number four, here's what it is. Jesus provides extra food. And if I could say that one of these miracles was more important than the rest, I actually think this is the one. Because I think it was for the disciples more than anybody else. You remember the disciples? Twelve disciples, twelve baskets, twelve empty baskets that they came to Jesus. There's two Greek words that describe baskets. And the one that is used here is the Greek word kofinas. It's where we get the word coffin. It's a container. The disciples, they had these baskets they'd carry with them all the time. But what was cool about the baskets is that they could kind of change shape or they could transform different size however they wanted. They could be small for a lunch sack or they could get even bigger. Um, interestingly enough, I have a great illustration for this because I see it all the time. My family shops at Aldi. I don't know if you know Aldi. We get, yes, one person knows. You and I can be friends. This is good. Aldi has changed my life. Uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of a Dave Ramsey guy. Can I get a witness, somebody? I, I like to, to, to spend within my means, live like no one else so that I can live like no one else. And so Aldi has changed my life because uh, when we started shopping at Aldi for our groceries, our food bill got cut in half. It's amazing. That's cool if you go to Publix or wherever you go. It's fine. No judgment for me. I like to go there too. It's good stuff. But at Aldi, their business model is that they will take away some of the service and make it a little more self-service so that they can slash the prices a bit, which I don't mind. Number one, because usually Jennifer does the shopping. <laughs> but secondly, I don't mind doing some of the work too. And, and one of the things that they've slashed is they don't bag your groceries. You, you got to bag them yourself. In fact, they don't even like really load your cart. I mean, they put the cart at the end of the conveyor belt and they just kind of shove them off. You hope that the, you, you got to strategically place the items on the conveyor belt. Eggs last, right? Don't put the hot dog buns first because they will be pancakes when you get home. And so we, 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 you got to figure out the ways to get around Aldi. And one of the smart ways that my incredible wife has figured out is about the bags that you bring there. But you, they don't have bags there. You got to buy the bags or bring the bags. Well, my wife, she has several different kinds of bags, and I brought some of them for you this morning. I forgot them in first service, so I'm glad that you are here today. Here's a few of these bags right here. Now, this, this, let's start with this little blue one. This little blue one's cool. Look at that thing. It fits in one hand. You can't even feel it. Check this out. Oh. It's like a magic trick. Look at this. Look at that. Oh, it's, that's a Walmart bag. Look at that. <laughs> they never even knew we're using it at Aldi. Look at that thing. Here's another one. Look at this thing. This one's genius. I don't even know where you find this. There's a lady in here that's wearing a, a shirt just like this. Oh, you're wearing one too. I said, I, I got an illustration. <laughs> I got an illustration that matches your shirt. Look at this thing. It just wraps up real small, right? You go there and you, you unload all your stuff on the conveyor belt. You take this bag and you put it, stretch it out and clip it into your cart. And then the Aldi people that don't bag your groceries don't realize it, but they're bagging your groceries. 
and just keep putting it in there. It's kind of cool. Now these kofinas that the, uh, that the, the disciples had, their bags would transform. Um, you could have it small, you could make it larger. What was really neat is that it could expand, it's a cloth bag, it could expand to the size of a full man. So that if they're out and about and it, it gets late and Jesus decides he wants to spend the night in prayer, all they have to do is get in their bag. It's like a sleeping bag. And these disciples who came to the table with empty baskets, Jesus now gives them a job to pick up the leftovers from this feeding of the 5,000 people. And so they take their bags and they begin to expand them and expand them and expand them as they go around to pick up the bread. It's not crumbs. It's chunks of bread. It might be loaves of bread. And they put the bread in their empty bags until it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And soon enough, the disciples who came with empty bags, they leave with their bags filled to the brim. Sometimes we come to Jesus empty. Some of us this morning are half full, some of us are completely empty. Some of us are full and you keep moving, it's great. But we can't ever forget that when we come to Jesus, he has the power and will fill you completely to the brim. What's the miracle that you need in your life today? Although there is so much that we can't count on in life, there's one thing that you can count on. Jesus says it best in John 6. Here's what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. May we go to Jesus when we're empty because you can guarantee that when you leave, you'll be filled to the brim.